honestly, if Amber were white, I don't think we would be having this discussion at all. Amber would be here with her, with her son and her family where she needs to be. The United States is one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world, and black women are several times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. Bruce McIntyre is trying to do something about that. His partner died after an emergency C-section at a Bronx hospital in late April. He says her death is an example of long-standing inequities in the healthcare system for women of color. And that's why he founded the Save a Rose Foundation. It's dedicated to shedding light on issues of maternal mortality among women of color in the U.S. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Community Dialogues, a program for frank discussions about race, racism, and racial justice. I recently talked with McIntyre on Zoom about the love of his life, Amber Rose Isaac, and his efforts to prevent other families from going through similar heartache. Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me, George. So first, tell me about Amber Rose Isaac. What kind of person was she? Phenomenal is, is a key word. There were just so many characteristics from her. She was definitely a leader um, amongst her peers. She was kind of that, that go-to person. She was that motherly figure. Um, everybody's seen her as a motherly figure. You know, her friends, some of her family including myself, um, which is something that, that drew me really close to her. Um, she was very thoughtful and caring and loving. Um, she always had the best gifts or the best advice. You could always go to Amber for advice and know that she's going to steer you right. And, you know, hints to why actually she wanted to, you know, she became a psychology major and um, you know, she was really good with people and, and understanding their emotions and helping them understand their emotions. And, you know, she taught a lot of self-love and self-care. She taught that to me as well. A thing that I had battled with um, back in 2014, I was struggling um, with anxiety and depression. And I struggled with that for, for years up until about last year. Um, you know, Amber was the one to actually help me overcome my anxiety and my depression. And, um, you know, she taught me how to love myself and um, how to take care of myself and how to feel good about myself. You know, she was just, just that type of person. You never had to question her intentions. You, you know, you knew that her intentions were good. Her heart was good. Um, but she was just an amazing person all around. What did she aspire to do? What goals did she not get to fulfill? So back in 2018, um, on my birthday, May 12th, actually, she got her bachelor's in psychology. She wanted to um, introduce art therapy to the youth, to the children of the, to the, children of the, of the communities. Um, she wanted to teach them how to express themselves through art because, you know, we're, we're both artists. We grew up loving art. Um, and that was kind of an escape for her, like art, poetry, you know, things of that nature. And she wanted to, you know, she wanted the youth to express themselves in an articulate way. And, you know, that's, that's something that she really wanted to do. She was so passionate for her community and so passionate for the children of the future. You know, she, even after... Um, obtaining her, her bachelor's in psychology. She wanted to continue her education. 
um, she was actually in the uh, in the process of receiving her master's degree for business development. Um, so while she was pregnant, she was also studying for her master's. Um, she wanted to obtain her master's degree and she wanted to open up um, early, early life programs um, because she was an early life teacher in Harlem. So she, she taught early life. She was the head teacher. Um, she wanted to help underprivileged families because those underprivileged families those are the people of our community those are our friends those are our family members so you know um, those are people that we know and hold dear to our heart and that's you know those are the people that she wanted to help she really wanted to help her community and she wants to start an early life program to help mothers who are struggling to help families out um, and to overall help children because she felt like the early life school that she was working at wasn't really, they didn't really care about children to her. Um, and that's not what she liked. And she wanted to introduce something, something new and, and something more attentive and, and, and tailored to those children. Um, because the, the, the children of our environment, they're, you know, products of their environment and they, they grow up and they learn so fast from, um, from, you know, their parents who are out doing whatever. Um, and, you know, kids are like, their kids, children's brains are like sponges, you know, they soak up everything. And she didn't want them soaking up all of that negativity that, that our environment is offering. She wanted to change that. She wanted to introduce um, something new and she wanted to expand horizons. I would imagine it never gets easy to tell the story of what happened to Amber, but it's an important story to hear what happened to Amber. I mean, to call it for what it is, Amber died due to negligence. You know, she um, ended up passing away from a C-section. And it was an emergency C-section, um, super last minute. And it, it wasn't something that we were expecting at all. You know, starting off with this pregnancy, this isn't something that was just, that just happened. You know, this is something that was well-planned, well thought of, um, and something that we were ready for, you know. Um, and whenever we found out that she was pregnant, it was the most exciting times in our lives. You know, she was so excited to be a mother. Um, as soon as she found out that she was a mother at 7.44 in the morning, um, she ran into the room. I can hear her, her, her feet running through the whole house. And she um, jumped on the bed and showed me her two pregnancy tests. And she was just so excited, so thrilled um, to be to become a mother, you know. And... You know, it, it seemed, everything seemed really good at the beginning. Um, you know, we're happy. We have so many expectations. We're planning. We're preparing. Um, but then we went to her first, um, her first doctor's appointment. And we met up with her OBGYN. And her OBG, she's known her OBGYN since before 2014. She's known her OBGYN for a while. And she really thought she was in good hands. But I had this very unsettling feeling from our very first appointment. Um, you know, her OBGYN was asking her, you know, oh, 
are you two married? You know, and we, we told them, no, we're not married, but we have plans. You know, we, we want to be together for the rest of our lives. That's no, that's no question. And it kind of seemed like the OBGYN didn't like that too much. Um, and she kind of just made like a noise and like, you know, when people are just, uh, you know, um, and then she, she had asked me, you know, well, is this, is this your first child? Because she knew that this was Amber's first child. And I told her, no, I have children from a, a previous engagement. And she did the same thing again. And right at that moment, I just remember feeling judged. Um, I, I feel like I'm being judged at this point because we're, we're, we're young um, black, we're unmarried, and we're having a child together. Just out of curiosity, was the OBGYN white? Um, I don't really want to touch too too much on her on her um, ethnicity, but I do know that some sometimes, like with with their, you know, with certain religions, they don't approve of you know relationships without marriage. Um, so that's as far as I want to kind of dig into that. Um, but I, I do remember feeling judged um and it, it seems like after that moment she was being less attentive to amber and you know the first trimester was going pretty smooth we were getting you know a lot of runarounds from the doctors the OBGYNs. um you know amber being a first-time mother you would expect them to really be there for her to really tailor to her needs it, amber didn't get that i know that you were so dissatisfied with the care amber was getting you turned to midwives right yes so you know she's not getting the attentive care that she deserves you know i was actually working on wall street at the time before COVID hit and i worked for a private equity firm on wall street and we worked right next to the new york stock exchange so we, we tend to hear about everything first. And I just, I remember that we, um, these, the stock market crashed three times in a span of two weeks, the first time it, it had ever happened. Um, so my job is telling me to prepare. So I'm, I'm, I'm telling Amber, you know, we need to get this ready. We need to get everything ready with, with our, our jobs, with, with um, you know, the, the doctors, the hospital, get everything ready for the baby. Um, because we're getting ready to lock down. So Amber is trying to, you know, she's, she's in her, she's coming into her second trimester or she's in her second trimester. I'm sorry. And Amber is trying to get all of the information that she needs from her job. Cause mind you, she's an early life teacher and she's trying to get her, her FMLA forms and all of these things prepared. Um, she was due May 30th. So she's, during this time, she's feeling like a weakness in her fatigue. And, um, you know, she's, she's getting FMLA forms from HR at her job and, you know, taking it over to her OBGYN. She's expressing these concerns to her OBGYN. Hey, my body doesn't feel right. Um, I'm having this bad shortness of breath. Um, she, you know, COVID is, is a pro people know about COVID at this point. And, you know, she's explaining to her OBGYN, you know, my conditioning is getting bad and it's getting worse. And I'm constantly having to, you know, pick children up and carry them upstairs. 
Um, you know, there are sick children who are still coming into school with no doctor's note. The school shouldn't even be allowing this, but they are because they're losing out on money because of COVID. Um, so she has children coughing on her, rubbing saliva on her. Um, you know, whenever she goes to pick them up, they're kicking her in the stomach, you know, and, and it's, it's just, it's really bad for her body. And she's expressing all of these concerns to her OBGYN. And instead of, you know, the OBGYN taking everything, you know, all of Amber's concerns into consideration, she brushes Amber off and she tells Amber, well, you know, there are other mothers working right now. What makes, why should you have to leave a month early? Um, you know, because Amber's trying to leave in April instead of May because because her of, of her conditioning and she, yeah her OBGYN is like oh yeah why should you leave there's you know there are other people working right now why why should you have to leave um so she's clearly not paying attention to Amber clearly so on the FMLA forms the OBGYN writes Amber wants to leave for personal reasons personal reasons so HR denied Amber's FMLA. So we had to redo the process. Bruce, do you think they were dismissing her because she was young? I mean, why were they dismissing her like this, in your opinion? I honestly, I honestly couldn't even give you an answer. Um, because it makes no sense to me why they were dismissing her, especially in her condition, especially with her advocating for herself so much. I couldn't, I couldn't even really give you an answer, but I do know that they were taking care of other demographics before her. Um, you know, mind you, Amber's trying, during the time Amber's trying to get early FMLA, she has white counterparts that are due after her who are getting, who are getting early FMLA, who are getting to stay home, who have job security. Amber didn't get that at all that wasn't an option for us. And it seemed like we just had to go through, through so many hoops and whistles. That being said, Bruce, do you think that Amber would still be alive if she were white? Honestly, if Amber were white, I don't think we would be having this discussion at all. Uh, Amber would be here with her, with her son and her family where she needs to be. What did you eventually learn about Amber's health that you didn't know all along when it came to her platelets? I didn't know how long her platelets had been dropping. Neither did she. So the, the tricky part, right? Amber's platelet levels had been deteriorating since December of 2019. They had time to figure it out. Um, from December all the way until April, you mean to tell me you guys don't find out that she has help syndrome until the day that she, the, until the day that they decide to induce her labor? What is that condition? I've never heard of it. So help syndrome, um, it affects the blood and the liver enzymes and the, the lower the platelet count gets it, um, your blood is unable to clot and your blood becomes water-like. And that's exactly what was happening to Amber. And they, it, it stems from, they say it stems from preeclampsia, 
since Amber's death, you've mounted a campaign to raise awareness around maternal death, and you've launched the Save a Rose Foundation in Amber's memory. What are some of the things that you're working right now to draw attention to because you want to prevent other folks from going through this type of experience? So I've been, I started advocating for her immediately as soon as we left the hospital. So the, the thing that I'm, I'm, there's so many things I'm doing. Um, it's a little, it's a, it's a little, I still can't believe I'm doing all of these things, you know? Um, but the, the first, the first um, action that I took was, you know, we weren't able to get Amber, our midwives, and we weren't able to get Amber into a, a birthing center. Um, so that was kind of the first thing that I started advocating for. Hey, we need a birthing center in the Bronx. Um, you know, there's one in Brooklyn that we were going to have to go to, and the, and the other one was in Buffalo, five hours away. Which, which people do, people make that trip because they don't want to deliver in, in the hospitals out here. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's, and I'm, and I'm doing more and more research and I'm figuring out, wow, there's only, you know, nine black and brown owned um, birthing centers out of 368 across the country. That's, you know, we need more black and brown owned birthing centers to attend and, and, and tailor to our people, tailor to our communities. Um, so that, that was kind of the first thing I started, I started doing, um, trying to figure out how I could get a birthing center going, or maybe I could work closely with the birthing community, um, which is what I did. And I ended up making the midwife that broke the news to us about Amber's platelets. I ended up making her one of my business partners. Um, and, you know, she was telling me, hey, you know, I know a woman who wants to bring a birthing center to the Bronx as well. Um, so maybe all three of us should collaborate. And that's when I met Myla Flores and, um, and, and was reading into the work that she's done with birthing equity and, and things of that nature. You know, so we together started, started putting plans together. And, um, you know, I, after, after my advocating, I had gained so many resources. Um, I just started feeding those resources to my business partners and to other um, birth workers who I felt could handle this while I handle, you know, things from uh, on the business aspect that I, you know, that I've learned from Wall Street, um, as well as, um, you know, some of these political aspects as well, because I, I've, I've been very deep into, into politics um, growing up. And I'm starting to notice, you know, wow, there are so many things that are preventing us from from having a midwifery-led freestanding birthing center. Um, so how, wow, what do we do about this? So now I'm finding myself having to study um, about bills and, and, and policies. I'm studying as if I'm becoming a, a midwife myself. I'm having to study um, birth work. I'm having to study law um, and I'm implementing all of these things and utilizing them. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, we, we weren't, we're at, because of legislation, uh, we're, we're unable to have a freestanding mid midwifery uh, birthing center. Um, however, I've been in touch with so many different offices from Senator Rivera, um, you know, Jamal Bowman, um, Lauren Underwood's office with Mom in a Bus, um, you know, several different politicians I'm, I'm, I'm in touch with. And they're 
really taking a liking into the ideas that I have and the bills that I'm trying to present um, that me and my partners are presenting. And um, right now I'm creating another act. I'm creating the Amber Rose Isaac Act. I don't want to get too far into that, but I'm trying to take that to a federal level um, that Lauren Underwood's office said that they could help with. So out with, so I'm hoping that um, we could attach this, you know, the Amber Rose Isaac Act to the Momnibus bill um, you know, that, that Kamala Harris and, and Lauren Underwood are, are promoting um, and pushing. Um, so that's, that's, you know, another thing that I've been working on, um, you know, with my, my midwife, Nubia as well. Nubia and I started up a, a scholarship program, the Amber Rose Isaac Access to Home Birth Scholarship. And what this does is it offsets the cost of insurance premiums, whatever insurance does not cover, the scholarship program will cover it. So you don't have to pay out of pocket. Amber had exceptional insurance through the hospital. And even, um, you know, even with exceptional insurance, we were still going to have to pay about four grand out of pocket to have a home birth. And if you have insurance, you should be able to um, give birth however you please, wherever you please. You know, insurance should cover that. They cover these hospitals, um, but they don't want to cover a, a home birth or they don't want to cover doulas or midwives, uh, which is something else that we're changing as well. Um, but with the Access to Home Birth Scholarship Program, we've been able to help out, um, I believe it's 16 families thus far, um, who have been able to use this program, who had Medicaid and who didn't have to come out of pocket. Um, you know, and that's those, these are things that we like to see in our community because we're helping our community. We're helping, um, you know, prevent situations such as, such as Amber's and, and, and what she had to face. So, you know, she's, she's definitely helping families out right now. And then we're also trying to make, um, you know, make this more accessible, more affordable um, to our communities. Because if, if you're not high risk, you don't need to be birthing in a hospital. Um, you need to see a midwife. You need to, to, to see a doula where they can actually take care of you and guide you. Um, Amber being a first-time mother, the hospital, the doctors, the OBGYN, they weren't giving her the proper education that she needed. Um, she took it, uh, thank God that she was a smart woman, um, and she took it upon herself to, to study prenatals and study her, her body and um, study the things that she would need to eat, you know, the, the correct vitamins, the right nutrients um, for the baby. And um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're creating things to make these uh, more accessible, more affordable towards, you know, to families. Um, you know, Nubia and I actually, um, Nubia just got the keys for Earth Grounds. We, because we're, we're unable to get this birthing center up as fast as we wanted it to, we ended up uh, um, opening, opening up another, uh, another store um, to, help, to help mothers with prenatal care and, and, and education and workshops. Um, things of that nature, things that they would need to know before pregnancy um, or while they're pregnant. Um, so that's that's an action that we that we just went ahead and took. We actually open our door tomorrow, and we're you know we're gonna um, fill out for the plays, maybe paint a little, um, and get ready for January. Um, but I, the the whole time I've just been combating against the systemic flaws within the medical system. What has spreading awareness and education done for you on a personal level, Bruce, helping you get through all of this on a day-to-day -day basis? Stepping into this has actually allowed me to understand my life a little bit better as well. 
Like I didn't fully understand. Um, I didn't understand postpartum depression. You know, in stepping into birth work, I, I started to understand postpartum depression and understanding that my mother actually had postpartum depression after having five children. Um, and, you know, she, it seemed like she was a little bipolar growing up and that was all due to postpartum. Um, so it helped me understand my life a bit better. It helped me understand, it helped me forgive um, and just, you know, understand people and, and patience. Um, but really it's, it's, it's helping me understand what's going on with other people because now whenever something is going on with somebody or something feels off with someone, I point out suggestions to them or things that it could be um, for them to look into it or, you know, see a doctor immediately. And, you know, there are women who are scared and they're like, oh, well, my doctor's ignoring me. Uh, you know, I tell them, no, walk in, walk, walk in, stand next to that door until they see you. Um, I don't care if you have an appointment or not, walk in and see them. You know, we have too many situations to where, you know, even after, after women are giving birth, they're still, you know, bleeding on the, on the, on the inside. Um, and, and they're still dying after pregnancy, you know? Um, so I'm telling them, you know, get yourself checked. And, um, but yeah, really the, the most that, that I've, I've gotten out of all of this is, is education but yeah, it's, it's all of this, all of this is really helping me understand like how to work with people and operate a birthing center and, and understand women and what they're going through. So I'm very grateful that I, that I stepped into this, to this work and that I'm in the position to help change lives and save people and um, protect families from, from going through this. Um, you know, right now they're saying that maternal mortality is going down right they're saying this now and i feel like they're only it's only going down but, because we're we're exposing it you know yeah but the fact of the matter is black mothers are up to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women according to the centers for disease control and prevention and statistics show in new york city that number jumps to 12 times more likely than white women so i don't know if you've also seen from the cdc over 60% of these women don't need C-sections. Over 60% of these women's um, birth complications are preventable. It almost, it, we're talking more than half. You know, that's, that right there is, that's not a coincidence. That's a decision being made. And it's, it's no coincidence that these hospitals and our lower income communities, right, are being defunded. They're being defunded. And the way for these hospitals, right, to catch up, they're doing things such as C-sections. Mind you, more than half of these women don't need these C-sections. But these hospitals are making $3,886 more per cesarean versus a natural birth. They don't want these women to birth naturally. They want to make money off of these women. I, I, I finally feel like due to the advocating that we're doing, people are starting to finally wake up to this realization. And the thing is, we shouldn't even have to create bills or create acts for 
um, to be treated as human beings. You know, it's, it's almost as, as if these people don't have a, a, a moral compass um, to tell them right from wrong. You know, um, it's just, we shouldn't have to be screaming Black Lives Matter, Black Mothers Matter. You know, we should already matter, um, especially, especially through, from our history and all of the stuff that we had to go through. We built this country. You know, we, we, were, we were stolen from the land, uh, from, the, from the, the shores of Africa. You know, our, our indigenous people were, were, um, were killed um, for this land and, and we're brought over here for free labor. And, you know, those, the same people that are running the government in this country, they can't even, um, they can't even see that for themselves, that, that we deserve this. This is long overdue. You know, as human beings, I believe that we are put on this earth to learn from each other and to and to, to live in harmony. And I feel like that's why we haven't, as human beings, have been able to advance as a as a species. Um, because we're we're so selfish, you know, we're so selfish. Um someone had told me, um, someone had one of my Uber drivers, right, had actually noticed me. Um, when I got into his car and he says, Hey, aren't you, aren't you that guy that's on the news all the time? Um, he was like, I noticed your name, Bruce. Right. And he was telling me, he was, uh, he was like, Hey, my, my daughter is studying to be, um, a gynecologist and, um, she's been speaking to my family back in, in India about, about you and your foundation and how, you know, um, how we've been combating against systemic racism within the healthcare system. And, that was just a full circle moment for me. You know, it was just like, wow, my, my work is really being, is really effective. Well, Bruce, I applaud what you're doing. I applaud what you're doing in the face of such tragedy in your family. Thank you, George. And that's it for this edition of Community Dialogues. Thank you to Bruce McIntyre for sharing his story with us. I'm George Boldarki. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>